Hey, everybody, I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. filthy this week, John. It's filthy. Corroded. Almost feel like we have to wear like a hazmat suit just to talk about <laughs> this story. We are going to talk about a person and a business that really is infamous in the Northeast, the tri-state area where Dan and I are from. And that person and business is called Crazy Eddie. Yeah. I'm so excited about this episode just because, as you said, anyone who grew up in this area uh, in the 70s and 80s, remembers these commercials. They are, I mean, it's got to be one of the most successful marketing campaigns of all time. Was it 50 years since since these commercials have run? Right, and, and everybody they, remembers. There's not a person that grew up. They're embedded in our in our brains. Yeah, it's embedded in our brain. Let me let me play a clip. I'm sorry in advance. I'm going to play a clip. Get those earmuffs off and listen to this crazy Eddie's Christmas blowout blitz is going on now with the lowest sale prices ever on receivers, speakers, turntables, compact display, or stereo rack systems, anything and everything in audio equipment. Remember, we are not undersold. We will not be undersold. We cannot be undersold. And we mean it. You don't have to ski cross country to get the lowest sale prices on audio equipment because Crazy Eddie's Christmas audio blowout blitz is going on now at a Crazy Eddie superstore near you. Crazy Eddie, his prices are insane. So it turns out that Crazy Eddie was not exactly above board. In fact, their business was crazy shady. Nicely done, John. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you so much. It took me a while <laughs> to write that. Particularly the patriarch of this company, a guy named Eddie Antar. This guy never met a scam he didn't love. He was a pathological liar, at least it seemed that way, and basically scammed everybody that he knew, including his wife, his family. He just liked, he liked a good scam. It was the name of what appeared to be a very successful retail electronics chain. In reality, it was a front for a $100 million scam. This is all the subject owner, of uh, an awesome book, and we're so thrilled because we have the author of that book, Gary Weiss. The book is called Retail Gangster, The Insane Real-Life Story of Crazy Eddie. Great. So let's bring him on the show. Gary, how are you? I'm fine. Hi there, guys. Thanks very much for having me on this podcast. Well, we are thrilled to have you, Gary. You know, I think both Dan and I grew up in the tri-state area around the time of Crazy Eddie's dominance uh, of the airwaves. And I think anyone who grew up in the 70s or the 80s in the Northeast remembers the store and then remembers the commercials for sure. Yeah, for sure. And they're often imitated too, because like I, I live out here in LA now and there's like a Larry... There's some sort of mattress company out here that does the same shtick about, you. Oh, it's crazy, Larry. You're crazy. It's like crazy Larry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they started something. Yeah. Well, you know, Eddie probably stole it himself. Probably. Because, uh, you know, the crazy merchant was really old, you know, by the time he began with it. But he did it better than anyone. He did it. He knew the market and he knew just how to appeal to that market. The market were baby boomers, people like himself, people of his generation. He, he he was a marketing genius, among other things. So we all know who Crazy Eddie is, but for people who aren't so familiar with him, Gary, can you just give us a, 
a, just a, a quick hit on who is Crazy Eddie and, and why do we care about this guy? Well, Crazy Eddie was the hottest electronic store in New York and in the Northeast, actually, in the 1970s and 80s. It was 43 electronic stores going from Philadelphia up into New England. It was a brilliantly marketed uh, bunch of stores using commercials that people remember to this day. You know, a guy was screaming, uh, our prices are insane. Behind the scenes, it was one of the biggest frauds in history. And, and, and the main fraudster was a guy named Eddie Antar. That's what this book is about. Not only do I remember him from the commercials, but I recall, and then this maybe could start leading us down the path of talking about the uh, this sort of behind the scenes of Eddie, but uh, my economics teacher in high school told us all a story about how before he was a teacher, he tried to open an electronic shop in uh, Deer Park, Long Island, and he called it something, he had a sign in the window that said something like, our prices are crazy. And uh, one day, some guys showed up and knocked on his door and said, uh, you'd be best advised to take that sign down immediately. And my and were they scary guys? And they I, they were scary enough that he uh, immediately did it. So, um, you know, we've been uh, we've been talking around who this guy is. Why don't you tell us all about Crazy Eddie? Yeah, well, yeah, let's start with the origin story. I think, like, who was Eddie Antar? What was his family like? Like, he grew up right already in a in a family of of salesmen and perhaps counters. We don't know, but definitely salesmen, right? Can you tell us a little of the origin story of Eddie Antar? Yeah, well, he definitely, as you went out, he, he was from a family of merchants. Uh, his uh, grandfather, his grandparents uh, emigrated from Syria, Aleppo, Syria, in uh, 1920. Uh, he was from a Syrian Jewish family, and, you know, Jewish people were uh, persecuted, obviously, and, well, not obviously, but they were certainly persecuted in Syria at the time. Now there's none left. And his father, his grandfather was a merchant, his father was a merchant, and they had certain habits when among them were dealing in cash and not paying taxes if they could avoid it. And, you know, and of course, most Syrian Jewish merchants are totally legitimate. And, and you know, there's no question about that. But uh, and over time, I've have sort of abandoned this this cash and tax evasion tendency uh, over the years. And he always used to blame the culture for what was to come, which was cash-based thievery and tax evasion and all the other scams that he perpetrated over the years. What was his first store? Like, when did Crazy Eddie first originate? Well, his first store um, originated in early 1969. His father set him up in business. He was set up in the electronics business on a place called King's Highway. This is this is a, a street that goes, runs through the center of Brooklyn, a lower middle class area. And Eddie had learned how to sell and how to hard sell uh, working for relatives in Times Square, in the Times Square vicinity. And these were in Jip Joy, in, 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 in places where they, they cheated customers. So they were designed to, to, to cheat tourists. I mean, really rip off tourists. And so he learned the hard sell and a lot of his salesmanship was, was learned there, but then he was set up in business in Kings highway. And, you know, he was, he had a deal with real customers, people who weren't going to weren't, they weren't tourists, you know, they were tough. 
And he had to figure out, you know, gee, how am I going to deal with these people? And that's where he came up with the, um, you know, with his genius idea, you know, being the crazy merchant. And he used even before those TV commercials that he's known for, even before that, he really knew how to how to, how to merchandise himself. It is so that even before Jerry Carroll was recruited, and this was in the mid seventies, for a good seven eight years, he had already mastered the art of selling to his his peers, uh, the baby boomers. And, you know, that, 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 you know, there were, there were these two elements to the crazy story. There was the legitimate and then there was the crooked and they sort of persisted on parallel tracks or parallel silos as we would call them nowadays. And the legitimate in its own way is just as fascinating as the illegitimate. I don't know if you knew this, but crazy Eddie is not the guy in the commercials. That's an actor. I know. He mentioned Jerry Carroll. Yes. I didn't know that. I, I thought that was Crazy Eddie. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that actually, I didn't know that until I read your book. So, that was very depressing to me. So, my whole <laughs> life, I thought Crazy Eddie was that Everything guy. you've ever Everybody, known is wrong. A lot of people uh, felt that way. That's a lot of, that's some of the reaction I'm getting is that, gee, I didn't know that wasn't Eddie. That wasn't the real Eddie. They had no idea. That. So, so can I ask you a question about the, I guess, the legitimate part of it? Because I never, I, I knew of Crazy Eddie's stores, but I never shopped mm. there. Were the products, you know, real products? Was there anything that was sketchy about the products? Well, yeah. No, he, he you know, sold, uh, of course, legitimate products. I mean, he sold brand names and off-brand names and house brands. But in order to get an edge, he would sell used merchandise display models as new. You're not supposed to do that. It's really illegal. But they used to do that. It was called lunch. They used to call it. This is where if he had a product that, you know, that the, you know, if he wanted to sell the, the display model, maybe they were out of stock. Uh, he would say, let's go to lunch. And they'd go back in the in, in the back of the, of the store and they'd get a bag. It looked like a lunch bag. And they'd repackage the uh, new merch, the, the, the used merchandise to make it seem like new. Uh, so that's one of the things he used to do. And also he was engaged in widespread, and this is from the beginning to the end, uh, bait and switch was his big, uh, the biggest way he had of broken customers. You know, they'd come in for one type of product. You know, I mean, Jerry Carroll, the phony Eddie, he would advertise uh, this and that, Sony, whatever, Panasonic. And they try to talk you into a cheaper model. Now, they're not trying to do you any favors because uh, the cheaper model, Eddie frequently made more money bigger profits on the cheaper model ah. so it's still bait and switch yeah. it's just as much bait and switch as if you try to bait them to the switch them to a higher price model. right same thing just as illegal and explain that's, ba- so is bait and switch is illegal oh it's it's illegal yeah i mean it's not they're not going to throw you in the in the in jail for it it's a it's a violation of the consumer code but oh yeah it's illegal you know if you and if you read the uh if you read the laws you know the statutes they they don't they're pretty broad, you know. You you set, you know, you you advertise one thing, you don't, you know, and you make it a campaign to not if it's not just accidental, but it's your policy not to deliver. That's 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 bait and switch. That's not so you go in looking for like a Panasonic stereo, and then he will bait and switch and talk you into buying like some really crappy for the same price, <laughs> or maybe even more, a crappy lesser model. Even less, but he'd still make more money on it. But the, the, the important element was is that he'd either have to advertise that Panasonic or 
in this case, uh, the, the Jerry Carroll commercials, they, they, he'd say, oh, we got Panasonic. You know, that, it has to be part of your advertising campaign. If you just wander in, you haven't been lured by advertising. Well, that's not really bait and switch. Bait and switch is where you're, where the, you know, where the advertising draws you in. That's the bait draws you in to to buy a certain type of product, and then they switch you. So, how much, uh, how much money was Crazy Eddie making? Well, his salary was up to six hundred thousand dollars at a time when that was good money for a CEO. You know, nowadays that's considered nothing for a CEO of a of a, of a large company. At the time, he was paying. By the time he left. You're paying him six hundred thousand dollars a year now. If you mean the amount that he stole, I don't know. There, there's all kinds of ways you can tow it up. You know, the amount that he stole, possibly through the amount that was recovered for investors. You know, he stole in various ways, and the biggest way he stole was through securities fraud, which was through constant lying to investors and all the creative ways he had of fabricating profits was that over time became the primary way Eddie stole. Uh, he stole from everybody. Got to keep in mind, you know, this guy stole from, he cheated his wife. He cheated members of his family. He cheated people who walked in the stores. He cheated consultants. He lied to every single person. He was compulsive when it came to lying. But I would say that securities fraud, that's where he really shined. I mean, that's where everything came together. The whole Antar complex came together to rip off investors. And they did a spectacular job of ripping of it right up to the end when they were taken over you know they were taken over eventually by a by a takeover artist named Victor Palmieri he was very big back in the 80s he and a Texas merchant king came came in and took him over and these were smart guys you know, they were expecting wow we're going to get this really terrific company because after all everybody knew about crazy Eddie was big and it, it, it the, the stock had really done tremendously they come in and they find this is this is garbage. I mean, all the everything has been inflated. What the hell? They were completely snookered by Eddie and his his guy. So we mentioned tax fraud because they, they they paid they use cash, which is amazing. Uh, the bait and switch, securities fraud. You also talk a bit about insurance fraud. I thought this was this was so old school. Um, so talk to us about the insurance fraud. I mean, at one point. Talk about the flooding, like what they would do with when it would flood, when a, when a store would flood. He had, he had many, many frauds. You know, this guy had, had a supermarket of frauds, in, in effect, that he was running here. And the insurance fraud was one that he was doing from the beginning to the end of his management of the company. When he, what happened was that when New York City, there's always going to be some kind of mishap taking place. You're going to be burglarized. You're going to have flooding. You're going to have some kind of problem. Eddie always bought that. Best insurance, you know, we're replacing merchandise at retail level or at retail prices. And he he did it so that and what he what he would do is that when there was when there was some kind of flood, for instance, flood, a flood, which is constant in New York City, you know, you'll have flood from the roof, you'll have sewers backing up. What he used to do is he 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 he'd bring in merchandise from other stores that wasn't selling. And he would deposit it in the in the path of the flood, and he'd get it all waterlogged, and he'd put in a claim for it. Frequently, he would recycle this. He would take merchandise that had been ruined in past flooding, and he would put in claims for it. You know, the insurance company could take could have taken possession of this waterlogged merchandise, but they generally did not. So he he had a special warehouse where he put put these waterlogged boxes, and he trot them out. 
when it when when a store would flood, he just put more electronics in the flood and just collect the insurance. It's unbelievable. Was he was he inciting any of these floods? Was he breaking pipes or anything like that? No, no, no. He never did that. And you have to, you know, he had, there were certain red lines that he wouldn't cross. He never set fire to his own place. He never stayed. No, he did not. Uh, he, he never, uh, why he didn't, I don't really know, but he never actually, cre- he would never create a fraud. Even I should say, oh, create a fraud. He would never create a flood or, or a, a stage of burglary or set fire to his own place. He never did that. No, but he would just sort of, uh, why he didn't, I don't know, but but what if the, if that happened, he would they, they would call it spiking the claim. He would spike the claim. And he had an insurance adjuster on that he would pay off. One of their favorite insurance adjusters would a corrupt insurance adjuster was his his which he would use to carry out this fraud. Do you think that plays into any psychology with him where maybe I'm not committing a crime, I'm just taking advantage of a situation that's happened? Yeah, I'm not quite sure why he never actually carried out. I don't know why that was. That was one line he wouldn't cross. You know, Dan mentioned earlier that, you know, there was those threats to his teacher. And I, I'm curious, there was a mob connection, right? There were some there were some gangster connections to Crazy Eddie. Well, I was surprised when I was researching this that there were not one but two mafia subplots. You know, I I, I knew about one. But the other came as a complete surprise. I mean, the the, the mafia supply, the two mafia supplies. First of all, he one of the things he did early on was to he went to a numbers bank in the Bronx in order to get his supplies. And one of the numbers bankers, one of the most prominent numbers bankers in the in 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 East Harlem and in the East Bronx in the sixties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, going back to the fifties, uh, operated an electronics store. I mean, that was sort of how they laundered profits or whatever it was. And he used to go to them. It was run by a mafia, a Genovese family associate. And he used to go to them for, for merchandise when the big guys wouldn't sell to him, when the legitimate firms wouldn't sell to him. This is early on in Crazy Eddie. He would, he would go to this numbers bank in the East Bronx on White Plains Road to buy merchandise. Uh, he would buy them at slightly above wholesale. So they made a little bit of a profit. But he'd go there. Now, the other astonishing real mafia subplot was that one of his – Subordinates, a fellow named Vinny Badalamenti, a young, uh, a young guy, very uh, cheerful young fella. Everybody liked him. He was r- a fast rising young guy in the uh, in the inventory department at Crazy Eddie. Everybody liked Vinny Badalamenti, and he was a wonderful young fella. And he left. He, he had a disagreement with Eddie, and he left. But nevertheless, he was quite a guy. Later on in life, he became acting boss of the Bonanno crime family. And I tried to figure out, and this this was never publicized. He was known as VTV, but this was never publicized. I always wondered, like, well, is there a commonality here between what he was doing or the type of person that he was as a rising young executive at Crazy Eddie and his later career with the Banana Crime Family? And I just couldn't find any, really. You know, he was a young, likable guy, you know, wasn't violent, wasn't, you know, a jerk or anything. It was really interesting. I thought if you're a, if you're a devotee of mafia literature, as I am, <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess he just uh, attracted that uh, that kind of crowd that had that uh, those abilities and uh, you know desires to what they're going to do with their life. I knew when I I knew when I saw two mafia subplots uh, when I, I became aware of that. I knew well, this is going to be a hell of a story. 
when you have two completely unrelated, completely gratuitous mafia subplots in, in, in telling crazy story, that like, oh, this has got to be a hell of a story, which which it really was. I mean, one of the things that amazed me is beyond his corruption in his electronic store, he actually started a university in the Caribbean that was a medical school. He started a crazy Eddie medical yeah. school. <laughs> Our surgeries are insane. <laughs> Side venture. They did this just before they went public. They had to disclose. It was a disaster. They had to disclose it because he he loaned money to to this medical school, and it was a medical school in an English speaking island in the Caribbean, Saint Lucia. And the idea was, well, look, if you don't have the grades to get into even a Mexico to get into a U.S. medical school, and you don't want to, and you don't want to go to a Mexican medical school because you'd have to speak Spanish, well, then you go to this 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 Caribbean medical school where at least you don't have to speak Spanish. And well, the problem was is that you know it just it just collapsed. It became like a, almost like a bait and switch, basically. For you know, you know and, and they just the customers who went there, the young students who went there, the they just a, a lot of them just could not. They're 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 when it eventually collapsed, they were guaranteed a spot at other medical schools, but their grades weren't good enough. They weren't good enough students to get into the other medical school when they collapsed. So they wound up high and dry. When did all of this or how did all of this start to really unravel for him? You know, we, we know he bolts, he leaves the country. Like, how, how did that all, did it happen quickly or was it a slow build? Well, he'd been putting money overseas for a long time, you know. And when you know, after the after the when when the frauds became became unsustainable, you know, when you're carrying out insurance, when you're carrying out actually securities fraud at the volume that Eddie was doing, you've got to continue to. It's like it becomes like a Ponzi scheme. You've got to continue to do more and more fraud, or it's just going to collapse. And he began to realize, look. This fraud is not going to continue. It's going to collapse one of these days. We started putting his assets overseas, mainly Israel. And at a certain point, when it was obvious that the company was going to be taken over because things were really bad, he fled to Israel. This was actually, as a matter of fact, actually, this was after uh, the company was taken over in 1887, 89. Well, Well, right around the time that the company was being taken over, he fled to Israel. He became an Israeli citizen, and he had like 15 passports, and he became a citizen of Israel under two identities, under his real identity and under a phony identity, which when that became aware, when the Israeli became aware of it, they were furious because they don't like that. Establishing a citizenship under an alias. Eddie Amtar is a fugitive from justice. Judge Politan ordered federal marshals to spare no expense in nailing the elusive Amtar. How, how did he get captured? He didn't do a particularly good job of covering his tracks. He, he used to uh, he used to use his his same birth date. This is a common mistake that fugitives make. You know, they use because they're used to it. They use their, their 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 real birth date when they set up phony banking documents and passports and such. And he used his real birth date in setting up a Swiss bank account. And contrary to his belief and his understanding, the Swiss Swiss secrecy has its limits. And when and eventually the U.S. government found out about his phony Swiss bank account, they traced him to Israel, 
and then nothing flat. He was he was back. He was in custody, and then he fought extradition. So he thought that the Israelis were, weren't going to let him go. That you know he, he had emigrated to Israel, and you know that they're not going to let him go. He's a Jewish person, you know, and he took refuge there. What he didn't understand is that he had taken advantage of Israeli law. They couldn't stand this guy. They wanted to get rid of him, and eventually he he went back to the U.S. So when he was in Israel, was his goal, was he going to try to set himself up and get back to his old tricks, or was he going to try to retire and disappear? Well, when he was in Israel, he he didn't really do very much. He sort of was holed up in Israel, in a, in a, in a house, in a, in a town called Yavna, and he... It, it was it was a very little he had a small room in a residential neighborhood it's not really clear exactly what he was planning to do in israel but it, what we do know is that right around the time that he was arrested in israel he was planning to get out he was planning to leave israel he had his bags literally packed and he had a lot of money that he had stashed away there so it's not really clear what he was doing it looks like he was he was just he was just on the run that's really what what his life was you know, he was a real family man. I mean, everybody, everything in the in the Eddie universe and his business was family run, right? Even like the accountant was like the star, you know, kid, you know, that they put through school, right, to be there to be their CFO, and everybody was in the family. But in the end, the family also turned on him, right? I would describe Eddie as what I call him, not in the book, but my feeling about Eddie is that he was a poor chess player, as a fraudster. He couldn't think two or three moves ahead. So it never dawned on him, and it, you know his his primary accomplice in these security frauds was the chief financial officer, a fellow named Sam Antar, Sam E. Antar. So his young cousin, Sam E. Antar, was his chief, you know, accountant and and the chief accomplice in the frauds. So Sam was really hard up for cash. He had all these lawyer bills. He was being loyal to Eddie, but Eddie wouldn't give him a cent. He only loaned him some money. So he was screwing over somebody who could turn on him. And sure enough, Sammy turned on him because he, you know, it was either him or Eddie. He had no choice. And and he had no loyalty left to Eddie because Eddie was Eddie was was screwing him over. And, and it was sort of the same with his ex-wife. Debbie won as she was not he he married twice. One was Debbie one, the other was Debbie two. Um he couldn't think ahead. He didn't seem to understand that if you treat a person badly, two or three moves down the road, they're going to they're going to sue you. They're going to get after you. They're going to take revenge. He had the, that gap in his mind. It was arrogance. And that was his downfall. So he goes on trial. Obviously, he's convicted. What, what happens next? Well, it was very interesting. The conviction was overturned on a technicality. It's on the basis of just... Some, you know, the prosecutor was Michael Chertoff, and he, he had a colloquy with the judge about the judge made some comments that made it seem a, as if he always believed that Eddie was was a crook, that he always wanted to get restitution from Eddie for investors. So he was reversed. He was reversed by the appellate by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. It was actually a pretty startling decision. So after he was reversed, Eddie pleaded out. And Eddie eventually, you know, he pleaded guilty. Eddie and Mitchell Antar, who was also convicted and whose conviction was also overturned, he, he also pleaded. Mitchell Antar was Eddie's brother and was one of his accomplices. And he pleaded, they both pleaded guilty and they served term, terms in prison. 
Did they die in prison? No. Oh, no. No, no. They were released. Eddie was re- in 1999, 2000, thereabouts. Eddie was released in 1999. He had been in prison for seven years. It's a pretty substantial period of time yeah. for, for, for white-collar crime. Mitchell somewhat less. Did he open another electronic store or like what? Uh, Nobody beats the whiz. Yeah. What What <laughs> happened next? Right? Well, <laughs> Sam uh, Goody. Actually, kind of. Oh, well, those were legitimate. Believe me. Actually, he he uh, did try to revive Crazy Eddie. Eddie did. And nobody wanted to get near him. You know, his reputation was down, down the commode. So there were efforts to revive him then later with and then without Eddie. And it didn't. It didn't work. You know, the whole whole environment for selling electronics had, had collapsed by the time he got out of prison. You know, it was 1999, and then you had the internet was rising at about that time. So brick-and-mortar stores, they, you know, with some exceptions, Best Buy still exists. You know, there still are a few stores left, but for the most part, it's all gone online. And Eddie just, it was a different world, and Eddie was getting older. His health wasn't great. And uh, you know, he died in 2016. And, and, and you know, I guess the question is, you know, what was he living on during that time? You know, did he have cash? Was he living off the cash? Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. It's sort of a mystery. What about uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Carroll, Jerry Carroll, his uh, his TV uh, um, doppelganger? Doppelganger. <laughs> yeah. What uh, did was he? Did he get questioned? Did he know anything about any of this? What was his involvement? Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, there were silos. You know, you had the marketing silo, which was legitimate business, and then you had the the fraud. And Jerry was in the legitimate end. You know, the marketing and the advertising guys—they yeah. were just selling electronic store. They Eddie kept kept those kept his frauds. Pre, he he only. Get, brought into the frauds people he could really trust, and he didn't trust the marketing people for that. And he certainly didn't let them know about what was going on. So Jerry Carroll, no, Jerry Carroll did not know what was going on. After Crazy Eddie, some other ventures, but he kind of faded. And was, he was a very shy person. He was he, he was not a person who liked to, you know, when he would appear at store openings, people would crowd around him. He had a real fan base. But he was very shy, and, when he, and he eventually died in 2020 of a heart ailment. He had longstanding heart ailment. He died without a funeral, without a death notice. Nobody knew when he died. It was, and, and to this day, people only read about it in my book. Because he died in 2020, after two years, even people who were close to him, even friends of his, did not know that he had died. He died in silence. He was known for, for screaming, but he died in the world in silence. That's sad. It is sad. Yeah. Wow. Sort of sad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from this whole story? Is there any sort of things that you were surprised to learn? Is there anything it taught you? You're somebody who's covered financial fraud for many years for many different publications. Anything about this case that really stood out for you? Well, it was certainly the most challenging story I've ever covered, or certainly the most challenging book, the most challenging project I've ever covered because there were just so many tentacles. There were just so many subplots. There were just there was just so much going on, legitimate and illegitimate and the illegitimate involved some some you know involved accounting fraud and after all it's not something that one encounters every day but i guess the thing that struck me was how easy it was he was he had an easy time king and it wasn't so much bilking the customers bilking bilking people who should have known better bilking wall street analysts bilking investment bankers 
building people who might take over the company. I, be- I began by describing how a man named Milton Petrie, who was a, a major investor, you know, a noted in- investor, how this guy was ready to take over Crazy Eddie. And smart people were completely hoodwinked by Crazy Eddie. And it just struck me as how, and the press was hoodwinked to a great extent by Crazy Eddie. And it it really brought brought to mind something I sort of already knew is that, you know, a really good criminal can really, can really get his way, can really hoodwink people because people assume good faith. They assume that you're not a crook. And his auditors assumed he was not a crook. The SEC, for the longest time, assumed he was not a crook. They just assumed that a CEO is legitimate. And there is that patina of legitimacy that was, it's almost like a, a suit of armor for a fraudster. If you, and, then, and you can see that with Madoff. You know, everybody was stunned that this man was, it's forgotten. And now he's a cinnamon. Now Madoff is a cinnamon for a, a synonym for, for evil, as is Eddie to a, to a, to a certain extent. But at the time he was carrying out his frauds, nobody could have possibly believe that that Madoff was carrying out frauds, that Eddie Antar was carrying out frauds. It just shows the, it's not that people are gullible. It's so much that, that a fraudster really can have an easy time if he knows what he's doing. And as a matter of fact, Eddie could have gotten away. I wouldn't have been able to write this book. Eddie could have gotten away with the frauds if he had done it a little differently, if he'd been a better chess player, if he'd looked out, if he'd done a better job of protecting his his co-conspirators, not hanging them out to dry, not cheating his wife. If he had done a better job, nobody would have ever known what he was doing. Amazing. Wow. You wonder how many people really get away with it. You know, yeah. we always we always like to think that con artists in the end they get their just desserts and they end up. But some people go to go to the grave having conned everybody including the probably the person uh at the mortuary <laughs> yeah, that's true <laughs> <laughs> you know oh, you bet. Yeah. Uh, um wow this is this is such a great story gary thank you so much for taking the time to join us today the book is called retail gangster and it is on sale at all places you can buy books we strongly recommend it can't wait to have you back to talk about your next fraudster <laughs> Uh, oh, absolutely. Thanks very much for having me. Really love, love talking to you. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening. <laughs>